Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. And welcome to episode 150 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapse horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart. And joining us tonight, you know him as the director of the Arrow documentary, Clapboard Jungle. And of course, from the Ice Cream Man episode of this show, it's Justin McConnell. Justin, welcome back. Hey, uh, it's good to be here uh, again. Uh, <laughs> I hope I picked another movie that... Uh... Well, we'll have a good discussion. <laughs> yes, I think we will. I think we shall. Justin, your last appearance on this show was 101 episodes ago, all the way back in episode 49. Um, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, you guys have recorded that many episodes in two years? We or have done years? two episodes a week minimum every week, apart from two weeks off at Christmas every year. With Do the minisodes count as full episodes? or no. like what, what's Okay, so Jesus, no. you've been working. It's, it's it's like it's like 320-ish broadcasts from April 2018, and it's it's you're essentially watching movies that are traditionally considered to be bad, you know, in quotation marks. So yeah. it's like staring into the void, and the void staring back at you at this point. Like it's, <laughs> there's little yeah. that surprises us now. Like, yeah. like Justin, like I, I I don't like having to confront the existential questions surrounding how I've spent so much of my time. For the last <laughs> save this till the end. But um, I would say that it's fair to say that yeah, the first time that you came on, you picked Ice Cream Man, which I would say is probably one of the more divisive films that we've had. Um, <laughs> do you think that the response will be any less polarized with your selection this time around, Children of the Corn Three? I honestly don't know because this is a movie I've liked since I was very very young, and I've got some personal stories tied into it. But I do think out of all the Children of the Corn movies, it's easily my favorite for a lot of stupid reasons. But <laughs> I don't know. I think it's it's goofy enough and it wears its heart on its sleeve and it has so much fun effects going on and the, some weird set pieces and just this odd charm to it that I'm hoping you both liked it. But who knows? It's hard to, it's hard to <laughs> fucking say ahead of time. So when did you come across this first? Okay. I don't recall the exact year or date. I was definitely young. Uh, I believe I saw part one first. Uh, yeah, that's what it was. I saw part one when I was really young, probably, you know, 13, 14 or something like that. Uh, and then uh, I convinced my parents to rent me part two. That one to me was relatively forgettable. And then I finally got to part three. And part three just has so many out there visual ideas with its effects that it kind of stuck to my brain. And there's certain set pieces in it, like the cornfield thing later on with the human scarecrow uh, head rip yeah. and the uh, the giant puppet monster at the end and all the Screaming Mad George stuff because he, he doesn't even credit himself generally in movies as a special effects artist. He calls himself a surrealistic effects artist, wow. which I think st- speaks really nicely to why I like this movie so much because it takes that basic children of the corn concept then adds the child's play to foster family dynamic and then adds some halloween three with the corn going out around the world uh and then also adds in evil dead camera work and it feels very much like a first-time director who which this was james hawk was giving giving the keys to a franchise and going you know what i'm gonna just fucking 
put my all into this and wear my influences on my sleeve. And I found it really, really fun. But one thing that, that was key to me with this movie that, that really sort of spoke to me was, was it was the first movie I sat down with a notepad in my hand, watching specific scenes and set pieces and timing out the time because you got to understand in the nineties coming up, you could, you could, there weren't really a lot of editing courses you can take. There was Walter Murch's book, which I didn't discover until I was in college years. But in terms of like edit pacing and, and mm-hmm. figuring out how long it takes to, until you cut and what shots connect to what other shots to sell a gag or anything like that, I, all that you sort of had to watch a movie and break it down. And this was the first of many movies I sat down with a notepad and went, okay, it's about five seconds between this and this and just really broke it down. And I know it's kind of, maybe it set me off on the wrong path. I don't know. <laughs> Someone else can criticize my editing. I'm not, I'm not going to speak for it, but I will say that, you know, it, it, I liked certain scenes of this movie enough that I wanted to fit, like break down how they were done. I don't think it's like the greatest film ever, but I do think it's due for a reappraisal, especially because in November last year, I started watching the entire Children of the Corn franchise. I watched all, well, I didn't watch all of them. I watched nine of them. I didn't watch the TV movie remake from 2009, and I haven't seen the um, Kurt Wimmer reboot yet because it's not available, but I watched nine of them. Uh, and of the nine, this is still the one that I've had the most fun with by far. I, uh, I'm not going to lie. I did not realize there were that many of those. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Andy. Yeah. What about you? Uh, I'm going to tell you this, Mitch, you know, that may surprise you. Uh, this was a first watch for me. Oh, okay. Yeah. You don't see that every day. You don't see that every day. And it's funny because, like, I've seen a bunch of these films over the years and they all kind of mesh together. And I had messaged you earlier saying, I don't know if I've seen this or not. And within minutes of starting it and seeing Screaming Mad George's name come up on the screen, I was like, I've definitely, definitely not seen this. Because he's one of my favourite special effects artists of all time. He did Society, which is one of my favourite films of all time. Um, so to me, immediately I was like, yeah, this is this is new territory to me. Uh, completely, <laughs> completely new. And uh, yeah, I'm going to tell you right now, I had a fucking ball with this. I thought it was great. <laughs> My first watch of this was right now. Uh, Justin, I'm kind of pleased to hear you say that Children of the Corn 2 is forgettable because I haven't seen it. So That's I worth watching. But... I absolutely will now. Uh, my curiosity is definitely there for that. So I also have a couple of questions. I Because I don't think that it's uh, imperative for you to follow this one at all. But I mm-hmm. have some questions as we go about where it ties in, if at all. Sure. I actually only saw the original Children of the Corn last year when Staten Cousins Row, that directed um, A Serial Killer's Guide to Life, chose it for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked that as well. I thought that, if anything, this was probably more fun. It's a completely different beast. It's way more audacious in a lot of ways. But we'll get into the particulars of that as well. But basically, like, not to jump too far ahead to my concluding thoughts, but um, I thought this was really fun too. But, uh, Justin, you've been here before. Uh, mm-hmm. Hopefully you know what's coming next. So, for the benefit of anyone who is listening that hasn't seen Children of the Corn 3, how would you feel about doing a 30-second synopsis of that? Yeah, I can, I can probably pull this off in 30 seconds. Yeah, you, you've got a confident look about you. I think you've got Yeah, this, I can right? probably do this. Yeah. Um, Andy, we've got 30 seconds on the clock. I can confirm, Mitch, that we do have 30 seconds on the clock. Okay. Three, two, one, go. After an older foster brother, uh, father is killed, uh, the two brothers are sent to the city to live with foster parents, uh, where one of them tries to acclimate and become part of high school and at lead a normal life. And the other one is essentially uh, possessed by uh, the demon he who walks behind the rose and then sets apart to recruit all the kids in the high school and in the area to become the new children of the corn and get a 
a, a strain of demonically uh, cursed corn out to the rest of the world so that the world can be cleansed Time. of all the adults. Not Pretty bad. good. Pretty good work there. I yeah, I mean, there's more to it, but that's close enough. I mean, there's certainly more to it, <laughs> but... That's a good, good enough setup as any, I think. I would say so. Yeah, I was yeah, pretty absolutely. pleased with that. I think that this has potentially the most dramatic opening and kind of opening credits of anything we've ever done. On this. <laughs> with the site <laughs> swiping out every single word. It's like, you worked on the movie, die! You worked on the movie, die! <laughs> <laughs> the first couple of times like where you're top of the line names i was like all right okay who do we have here right boom 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 and then i was like fuck it they're going to do this every single fucking time and they they do like everyone gets swiped off there yeah and i think the credits are a good two minutes which probably was part of just the plan to if you if I, and i think the end credits play pretty slow too mm -hmm. so it might have been a plan to get it to the 85 minute point uh to do that they used to do that a lot in the 80s uh and the 90s where you, you you need like 80 to 85 minutes to sell the movie so they make the the slow crawl end credits and the opening credits are like white on black or whatever for two <laughs> three minutes so so that you hit that running time and yeah this happens here too i thought it was really entertaining but also there was a point where i was like this is taking a while <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then um, you're right into the opening and you, you get like a pretty solid kill right off the bat and um you can tell the visual style especially if you've seen the two previous children of the corns where they're shot very uh workmanlike there mm, yeah. there's not a ton of you know dutch angles and sam raimi rush zooms and all this stuff and this one just like throws that at you in the first two three minutes and <laughs> yeah I, I was sold right away uh, i think mitch when i messaged you to say that this is a blast or whatever it was that i sent you that was right round about the time that the dad gets killed here and i that, like that was the point i decided that i was full in when he gets turned into that scarecrow with his eyes stitched closed and his mouth stitched shut i was like right this is entirely for me. I don't care where it goes from here. I'm on board. Yeah, I think that um, it definitely sets its stall out. And also, I think that it's probably as convincing a start in terms of kind of letting you know that this is very far removed kind of stylistically and tonally from the first film, at least. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Andy, as you as you correctly pointed out, we uh, we have a Well, as you both pointed out, we have a great kill here. Um, notably, the dad of Joshua. Yes. Yeah, I think his name is Joshua. Is it Daniel or Joshua? Joshua I, and Eli are the two boys. That's right. And Eli is the younger kid, yeah. That's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. Um, and it is Eli that does the killing here uh, during mm. what I kind of, I think, probably oversimplistically described as an altercation in a cornfield. Yeah. Oh, I, that's where I got Daniel from. The actor that plays Eli is Daniel Yes, Cerny. yes, that's right. Okay, ah, that's what okay, okay. Okay, that's been... Yeah, oh, I, one thing I really love about this part compared to almost all the other parts is they really lean into the supernatural a lot and you get the like the vines in the cornfield being used like the chains from Hellraiser and, and shit can grab you from the ground and anything could potentially happen. Scarecrows can come alive and all that stuff. And mm -hmm. you don't really get much of that for the rest of the series. Part five's got one insane kill. Part four is a little less supernatural. Part two has a lot of really funny kills, but they're not necessarily like the cornfield is alive. So... This one really leans into the idea that the ground itself is a is a danger, and it's not just the kids. Yeah. I really like that. Uh, I think that it's um it's a great kind of like anything goes kind of all bets are off opening. Yeah. I think. But yeah, straight from this, we have the two of them uh, going into um, the adoptive care of William and Amanda Porter. Yeah, and um, this must have been troubling for you because it's a nondescript chronology hop. Yeah, I didn't care for it. Um, yeah, I was yeah. like. Yeah, if I don't know exactly where we are in the timeline, it starts to get a little bit itchy. But yeah, no, um, uh, William and Amanda Porter, I would say they do their best here under what is, like, very challenging circumstances. You mean as actors or as people? <laughs> <laughs> I, I meant as characters, I guess. Yeah, but. yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, they're trying for sure, but you know, Eli's creepy as fuck, and <laughs> Joshua's just. Uh, he, at least he sort of gets along, but he, even right at the beginning, that first dinner scene when they're when he's he's trying to be like they call this pizza. It's like a Japanese invention. Or I'm paraphrasing the fucking quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Eli gets a chance to say grace, and right off the bat, it's it's like oh, we might have adopted a psychopath. Yeah, is <laughs> yeah. um, very fire and brimstone right out of the gate, isn't he? Like you know, yep. yeah, yeah, he's right, not subtle. Yeah, right, <laughs> it's right out of Isaac's book from from Children mm-hmm. of the Corn, and it's. I, I mean, it's an absolute downer. That's not how you want to start your... Pizza is a food that should be consumed with hope. (laughs) (laughs) It's a universal language of optimism. No, I think it's funny that um, uh, Bill kind of sarcastically describes the grace as a toe-tapper, which I thought was a funny choice of words because it implies that every other time people say grace, it's set to jaunty music. (laughs) But yeah, um, I think that between uh, Joshua breaking that really expensive ornament, which, by the way, like could not have been... You couldn't have seen that coming any clearer if it was signposted. When he's like, I, um, don't pick that up again. It's really expensive. And literally, like, eight seconds later, it was on the floor. Well, I yeah. thought it was being set up as some kind of Chekhov's item that we would return to later. But, it's yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's all over the floor, like, five seconds later. Yeah, but I think that's just establishing that Eli's a douche and he doesn't care. Like, yeah. that's that, that second time it ends up on the ground. He did that on purpose just because he doesn't. He, you know, he's above the human race, essentially, because some spirit of some demon is inside him, and whatever's in him is ancient enough that it's like, fuck these people in <laughs> <laughs> <And> their vase. <laughs> I'm going to perform a series of petty irritations. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, yeah, it's a rough first 24 hours on the job for Bill and Amanda. Like, yeah. Because you have these two instances, and um, Amanda kind of uh, seeing a suitcase full of insects, but then when William looks at it, it's just full of corn. Uh, which Eli has packed and taken with him. By the way, yep. also kind of weird in and of itself, like a suitcase full of corn versus a suitcase full of beetles and cockroaches. Like, both kind of mm. weird at first glance. I suppose so. <laughs> I also think it's funny that after we see all these things, uh, when they're kind of having a review, a kind of like debrief of the first day, it kind of comes with them like in bed, kind of like scantily clad, having a like pre-coital powwow about the children. But this intercut with... One thing I think this movie does pretty well is it intercuts multiple different story threads at the same time yeah. to build tension when there isn't, you know, necessarily inherent tension in one of the three story threads, but somehow juxtaposed against each other, you get this sense of like something otherworldly is is putting chess pieces into place to fuck with everybody's life essentially. And I, I, I somehow he's he, James Hickok actually captured that pretty well, which I found pretty impressive for a you know the second sequel to a to a horror franchise most people forgot. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I think that all this stuff is, I think all this stuff is really well done. Uh, Eli sneaks out in the dead of night to uh, the abandoned factory and specifically the kind of like the land around it to uh, plant some corn in the ground. And mm-hmm. I feel like when I wrote that down, I was like, oh, he plants some corn on the grounds of the factory. I feel like that is vastly underselling how dramatic a sequence this is. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it's got that whole thing. We, we get this moment earlier where we learn that perhaps the presence of these two boys, one of whom is extremely creepy in the house, has proven a bit of a passion killer as far as uh, the parents are concerned. Yeah, I, I can kind of understand that. But wait, then later we do see them, again, this, this intercutting thing of Eli sermonising and planting the, the, the corn and Alison... Was his name Willi- William? Alison William uh, and William, Flagrante. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a William and Amanda. Amanda? Yeah. Well, no, because I'm sure is she not credited as 
like Alice, but her name's Amanda, or vice versa. Oh, Christ, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's Alice because yeah. I remember the funeral scene. I'm pretty sure it's. I'm pretty sure it's Alice. I think she's credited as Amanda though, which is weird. <laughs> okay, that is odd. Okay, maybe it's like one of those blue shirt, gold shirt things. We've just well, we both watched the same. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you heard Alice? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what I do like about this is that. Um, and I think that one thing that I think is a testament to how well this film kind of sets its stall out is that by the time we've had the kill and the kind of like the grounding in the adoption, by the time that we reach the point in the story when it's time for them to go to school, I was like, well, this is going to be fucking chaos. But I was like, but that was the point where I realized I was like, yep, I'm in. Yeah. Well, the, <laughs> the minute you saw that every that this was the 90s and everyone was dressed like characters out of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. um specifically just like well yeah that but also like specifically just kind of like um i just kind of realized that i'd hit like a solid level of investment to see where this went okay well i do think that the the like the teenage characters who become the friend circle for uh joshua uh are actually pretty pretty well delivered and well written for for these type of characters like they're they're pretty three-dimensional uh even the bully character is 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 like your stereotypical bully but uh there's more to them than than you get from a lot of these movies um i think of movies like the substitute sequels or something some of those are good Mm -hmm. i'm not saying they aren't but like a lot of those teenage characters are written in a way that's just like uh, I'm the tough guy with the boombox, and you know I'm the pregnant girl, and you know it's. I just feel like there's a bit more to these people, so you, you get invested earlier on in the movie for what's about to come. Definitely, um, I th- I think that all the stuff all all the stuff at the school early on is like really quite compelling. I also think it's funny that when they're first introduced to the class and they realize that they're going to get split up because they're obviously two different ages. Yeah. Uh, Eli, I think, is the one that kind of like freaks out about that visibly. Sure, yeah. Um, I, but they've just been introduced to this class full of kids who do not look impressed by like their manner and their kind of Amish attire. Um, <laughs> but then the the headmaster and the parents are like, "We're going to talk outside, and we're going to leave you two in here in front of this room full of like this very oppressive looking room full of kids. Everyone, be nice. Talk amongst yourselves. We'll be back soon." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Throwing them to the sharks. It's pretty great. That guy as well, the the headmaster guy, uh, Mr. Nolan, or Father Nolan, whatever he is, he's the hotel manager in Ghostbusters. Oh, Oh, that's right, yeah. (laughs) The priest guy. Ah, I know that guy from something, and it was Ghostbusters. This this goes about as well as expected. Eli almost gets into a fight with T-Lok. T-Lok, yeah. yeah, He's he's bad. He's bad. He's one of those guys that's taught himself how to do that thing with a butterfly knife, which is how you know that he's bad. (laughs) like the, the i don't know the leader of the gang from only the strong or something it's yeah. a, yeah. it's a neat it's a needless level of flourish as far as i'm concerned mm. <laughs> i don't know i like my bullies with a bit of showmanship you know right okay well it's a, i think it's a deterrence measure if you know you can flip out the butterfly knife properly people are like okay i'm not fucking with him he's he's done been training you know that's probably a crazy guy yeah. i'm gonna just step back a little bit whereas you got a lock blade or something it's like anybody can carry one of those exactly. yeah he's probably like a really pacifistic guy that learned that one trick so people would yeah. leave him alone <laughs> did you notice Charlize Theron in the early parts of the movie at all or just later yeah just well later. I, yeah I noticed her I noticed her a few times throughout um and Nicholas Brendan as well from Buffy yeah 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 he's briefly in it too no I I I, I only have is that Charlize Theron in block capitals like two-thirds of the way through <laughs> I, I had no idea that she was around in these scenes um but yeah th- is, is this is this her um is this her debut I yeah. think she was in a couple. Of, is it her very first I believe, film? I believe it's a. Well, actually, no, I'm not sure. I know it's, I it's Nicholas Brendan's small, first thing. 
I, I even think she's uncredited in this from what I can tell, but uh, I don't know. I think she's, yeah, she's the one who gets the evil dead kill towards yep. the end. Yeah. Joshua has a better time kind of ingratiating himself than Eli does. Uh, not least because he's surprisingly handy with a basketball. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, we, well, he probably had like a hoop or something outside of his farmhouse or, or whatnot, or I don't uh, know. Don't he had to know. throw chickens into a cage, or I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say basketballs don't bounce well in dirt, but neither do chickens. So, uh, <laughs> ah, it's just like the good old chicken toss that we used to do in Gatlin, Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is good enough to basically kind of like I think that it's it's enough to kind of like uh be a bridge between the weirdness of Eli and the kind of like relative air quotes normality of everybody else. And Joshua I think has a bridge, a road in where Eli doesn't, which I, he immediately Eli immediately has an issue yeah, with. But I think it also serves early on to to show that there is this massive difference between them, which we'll come to learn the reason for later. Like it's not like these two boys are cut from the exact same cloth because that couldn't be further from the truth. Plus, uh, Joshua is going to age out soon, right? Because once you hit nineteen in the Children of the Quorum universe, you become mm-hmm. a target. You, you, you know, you're sacrificed to he who walks behind the rose. So, uh, I think part of it is also Eli realizing that his brothers, you know, meet for the beast soon. So there, there's this rift from them just from their age difference right off the bat. And they're not actually blood brothers. Like they don't, yeah. I don't, they don't share the same father. They they kind of came up together as fosters, kind of thing. I think that uh, it's funny that, like, because the, the film creates this massive split between Joshua and Eli, because right after this, uh, you see um, Eli kind of, like, staring down Joshua on the basketball court, and then immediately going and um, chanting some more bombastic doomsday stuff at the corn. Yeah, yeah um, very Omen-inspired, the, the music and the chanting and all that sort of thing. It's, like, straight out of that score. Very operatic across the mm-hmm. board, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But I think that also, uh, one thing about lower budget movies is sound design plays such a huge role in making something feel like it's bigger. And uh, this one kind of shoots for the moon in terms of like making a big soundscape and, and really punching you over the head with yeah. just, you know, the, the atmosphere of the, like it, that, that, that music brings. And, and uh, I think it's really sort of important to make this film feel bigger and uh, like it, it exists in a bigger universe than it actually does, which is, you know, a movie shot. Uh, on a low budget in a in a city using whatever they possibly could and with some creative effects and stuff barely any cast of note and mm-hmm. uh yeah it's uh that 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 music and sound design absolutely drives home the bigger ambition i think that uh, the team had for what they actually had the money to pull off like, I, I i i totally agree like i, th- I think that um uh, I hadn't necessarily thought about it that way but in terms of you're right in terms of just kind of getting across the scale of this thing in a way that you can kind of do with a fairly slight like stock of resources, it gets that really right. Yeah, and I actually really liked the, the sound design in this, and the, the the score as well was by Daniel Licht, who did Dexter and stuff like that. Yeah, which is pretty great. Uh, but I, I watched it with headphones in, and it's surprisingly strong. How's the? Uh, you, did you watch it on an Arrow player? So was it like a decent 1080 copy or what? Uh, well, I, I don't know what was going on there because I, as far as I was concerned, it was on the Arrow player. But it's not on the UK Arrow player. But yeah. does that you strange? Know, you know the Amazon channels thing. Yeah. Like if you have the Arrow player or the Arrow channel thing on Amazon, yeah. you can watch on that. So I, I rented it on mm. Prime, and the visual quality of it's not the best. But no, it still it sounded pretty good. Amanda starts digging around here at this point uh, because the plants in her garden are starting to die. She discovers the covert cornfield here, has a fairly creepy experience in there, then uh, I just wrote down jump scared by vagrant. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I like um, that when, whenever anyone kind of enters the corn in the warehouse or the this kind of unit that he's grown the corn in, like it kind of transports them to Gatlin and outside. Yeah, it feels like that cornfield is out of space and time. Yeah, something. like like that 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 field itself doesn't exist except once you walk through whatever portal he's created. I mean, it probably maybe it does. Maybe there is this big field there, but. Uh, but even that comment about this is terrible soil. How is this corn growing here from, yeah. uh, from the father? It's like, okay, maybe this is this is not a real physical plane they're in right now. It's some kind of pocket dimension. But who knows? I might be overthinking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I, I think that there's I think there's something in that. I think it's funny as well when Amanda is like that cornfield is fucking weird. Cut it down, and William's like, ah, the boy needs a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> Things won't be difficult for him enough at school. Like, once they learn that he's also a weird corn farmer in, yeah. in Chicago. Uh, he hijacks empty, um, abandoned industrial spaces and uses it to cultivate corn. Yeah, he's a rogue arborist. <laughs> <laughs> William, however, uh, does head out with Shears and uh, gets jump-scared by Eli, who spends a decent amount of time in this film jump-scaring people, actually. Oh, hey, before that, though, that hobo comes to a sticky end, and then we see oh, him so again loads of times. Like That hobo yeah, gets, he gets those... Yeah, planted, like, Motel Hall style, basically. Yeah, those corn tendrils in his eyes. <laughs> Pretty, that, that actually, yes. Yeah, like, we shouldn't blow past that, because um, that visual is great and gets no less great every time you see it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the effects on this. The fact he's alive the whole time too. It's like the the corn's probably feeding him, keeping him alive, and it's just pure torture for him. For for what reason? He he wanted to eat one piece of corn. (laughs) And you you kind of have to believe as well that the the corn is maybe if if it is growing in bad soil, it's maybe taking its sustenance from him as well. Yeah, maybe. But William is kind of dissuaded from uh, doing any damage here because uh, he is seduced by the tastiness of the corn. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah that's some damn tasty calm he immediately gets dollar signs in his eyes here he i, I don't know what it is that he does but he, he, he seems to work for big agriculture somehow <laughs> like he uh, there's a lot of kind of shadowy backroom deals being made over corn in this film well he's either that or he's he's a he's an independent salesman of some kind who knows where to bring this particular strain to go hey look you know I know where to get tons of this shit. He seems. Yeah, to be that was kind of, that was kind of my uh, that was kind of my assessment. That mm. he was one of the yeah he was that he was that kind of guy. Well, no, he seems to be working for a company that have no interest in his corn. This corn strain that he's found because he, later on in the film he goes off book to make this shady deal with this guy. Oh, so, that's right. He sells it off to yeah, yeah directly. And the guys like that to him like, why can you not just take this to your own bosses? And he's like, screw the bosses. Like, I'm I'm out for myself, man. <laughs> His ships come in with that corn. Exactly. Yeah. While we see uh, Joshua kind of like befriending uh, Maria and Malcolm from next door and um, starting to kind of dress a little bit more kind of like uh, like everybody else and that kind of thing, we see it basically kind of like we, we get this kind of thing that's obviously meant to establish he's adapting better. He tries to include Eli. He's not having it and he's obviously super resentful of the fact that Joshua seems to be kind of meeting everybody else in the middle a mm-hmm. little bit. So um, we have our first sepia flashback at this point yeah what that's a scene from if it's all the kids showing up at the old priest's window i believe that's a scene from children corn too it's, that uh, was my guess and that's what yeah. i wanted to verify this particular <laughs> cpf flashback is the opening of children of the corn with the cafe scene at the very beginning the diner. I, 
Is it the actual cafe scene from the first turn? Oh, okay. So there's two flashbacks in this movie. There's the flashback to the cafe attack, but I'm not sure if that's the actual cafe attack from the first turn of the corn. You've seen it more recently? Because I don't know if that's restaged is the point I'm trying to make. I thought it if, looked pretty legit. Okay. Maybe maybe it just is that. I know the second flashback with the priest is uh, is Children of the Corn too. Mm. That's it. That, but um, maybe. I, I always thought that that was a restaged flashback. But uh, I could be wrong. It's possible, to, but it, it looked good to me. It looked good to my yeah. eye. Eli goes to a Christian church next, which goes about as well as you'd expect. <laughs> yeah. and they're like, "Would you like to give the servant?" And he's like, "Yeah, okay." Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, really, that... really, he called his bluff. Like, yeah. he it sick of that, didn't he? Oh yeah, yeah, yep. and immediately started planting the seeds of distrust in adults. Yeah, yeah. Although it's a very far-reaching sermon that he gives, uh, and there was a point I can't remember what it was specifically he was getting into, but he sounds like the people who rant on 4chan about fluoride. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, uh, in high school, my friend Joe Styles directed a short film called Bible Thumper, and I played a chainsaw-wielding, super, super re- religious killer in it. And I think I took all my dialogue, or the way that I delivered the dialogue from Eli and Children of the Corn Three. That's a movie that barely anybody's ever seen, but uh, but I, I I'm pretty sure I was just ripping Eli through the whole thing because it was mostly improv. That's that's great. Super. Exposition time at this point. The social worker who made the connections in the beginning figures out that Eli and Joshua were originally adopted from Gatlin, Nebraska, obviously the site of the first film, and also uh, more curiously that Eli has been frozen in time, ageless since 1964. At least, mm-hmm. which would make him older, I think, than Isaac. So, like, I the the thing about the continuity in the Turn of the Corn movies is there really isn't any, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> And uh, so I don't know, like, if you can actually say, oh, he's older than Isaac, so he was more powerful than Isaac, and maybe he's the one that got Isaac possessed, because I don't think they're connected like that. It's like the continuity in a lot of the Freddy movies, right? There's always more Elm Street kids, well, there's always more Gatlin kids, is kind of how the Children of the Corn franchise goes. There's always some descendant or someone's connected to the town. That's the only real connecting thread between most of these movies. I think two has a little bit more connected with one than, uh, than the others, but otherwise there's that, so... Yeah, that whole idea that e- that Eli is so old, I think, is just like new lore. It's it's not hmm. connected to the first one at all. Okay. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that he's older even than that because I noticed that he forgoes a school bag in favor of just wrapping a belt around his books. Yep, it feels okay. pretty yeah, old yeah, timey yeah. to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that this is a really fun set piece when the social worker dies. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, it's amazing with all well, the melted candle head, which is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's like yeah. that's the kind of beast of resistance of that whole thing i think that the build-up to it is great like when she tries when she like gets kind of jump scared by eli again rushes back to the office but see when she tries to like phone and warn them and the phone line kind of gets taken over by those voices yeah 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 and then uh and then obviously she tries to light herself a cigarette and burns herself alive i think this entire thing is great it escalates really really nicely yeah and then you've got that lovely raiders of the lost ark style melty head which yeah. is just yeah. superb. Yeah, and I think it also speaks to the omnipotence of, of Eli. You know, he's got this this massive Damien style power behind him that mm-hmm. can make, it can actually influence random events to create mm-hmm. whatever he wants to in a final destination kind of way. Plus the power of the cornfield and bringing scarecrows to life. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he has a vague, vast set of powers, and you don't want to fuck with. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that you're right. This is actually like a great, um, it's a great showcase for that, isn't it? Like, it's a really, it's a really great set piece, but it's a great thing for like, right? This guy can yeah. do basically anything. There's actually mm-hmm. a fair amount of that said by 
Joshua, like, and people don't question it enough, but there's like four or five times he's like, look, you really don't want to mess with my brother. Like, he's he's fucking crazy. Like, you really, like, please don't do this with Eli. Like, you you yeah. solely regret it. And no one goes, it's fine. <laughs> Te- explain yourself. Why? Well, did you see the Twilight Zone? He's like that kid with imagination, but it's way worse. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, I uh, after I'd kind of like written down uh, the, uh, like a rough description of what happens here, I wrote this is fun beside it, and then wrote less fun is when Eli sticks his tongue in his mum's ear. Oh yeah, yeah that's gross. <laughs> yeah, he really fucks with her before she dies. Yeah, um, I think it's everyone who can sort of see the truth of him. He's like, well, I'm taking them down four pegs before I kill them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like you'll learn a lesson then immediately die. But you will definitely learn a lesson first. And again, she tries to kind of relay her fears to, to William, but he's in the middle of the kind of aforementioned corn meeting. Um, mm-hmm. So he doesn't really take her seriously at all, uh, which I suppose is to his detriment here because she's not long for this world. No, uh, because she decides to take matters into her own hands. Um, she's going to go cut down the corn herself. And this is intercut. With, uh, yeah, Bill trying to turn a negative into a positive by selling the fruits of his devil child's labor for a tidy profit. <laughs> so we see that going on while, yeah, Amanda has this kind of like a fairly similar but kind of like amped up encounter in the cornfield uh, to the other ones that we've seen up to now. But uh, but yeah, she ultimately tries to escape. I think this death is really good. Love it. Mm-hmm. Oh, straight out of My Bloody Valentine, yeah. the original, right? It's very similar. I do think, uh, I like how it's water at first, then when they cut back, it's just these geyser of blood spreading out of her mouth it's uh it's certainly uh it's another final destination style death i think she's gonna she's gonna die in the cornfield for whatever reason and then it's like oh she made it out and then she slips on a pipe and smack it's so good a a front to back love this (laughs) it is is great yeah um uh we immediately chronology hopped after the funeral Mm -hmm. um at this point and then we get another kind of like another uh headmaster priest guy nightmare which this i think is maybe the flashback that you were talking about yeah earlier. that's the children of the corn 2 flashback for sure that's one of the more effective set pieces from children of the corn 2 that and the old lady getting hit or yeah old man lady in the wheelchair getting hit by a truck flying through a window of a bingo hall right where the old man feels bingo at the exact same time and everything. <laughs> that's a- <laughs> well if i wasn't gonna watch it before <laughs> I'm definitely gonna watch it now. No, I um I did assume that this uh the set piece in the flashback was from Children of the Corn too, and that was kind of like I was like I need to verify this because like this is shaping up like something I really want to go back and check out. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Also, the embers of a love story between between uh, Joshua and Maria. Yep. How do I how do I hit a home run? You don't like yeah. <laughs> brothers yeah. right there. I, I always had a good laugh at that scene. Malcolm, um, yeah, Malcolm's furious because he doesn't want her to get mixed up with uh this crackpot yeah. family. <laughs> Which is fair enough, because in the very next scene, we see Eli sermonizing again to uh, what looks like a, a factory full of... like All the kids in school seem to have kind of become goths overnight. They've all got... They all seem to be wearing black turtlenecks and necklaces. Yeah, like, it's the same 90s clothes, but it's black now. Yeah. <laughs> they all look like uh, people that are menace <laughs> to society. So, yeah, pretty much something like that. Um, but the seeds for that were sown really early when Eli takes the corn um, pieces and they turn into the roaches and the roaches climb into the dinner of all the people in the school and everybody's eating it. That's kind of like the first stage of their possession or whatever it is he does to people. Yeah. Um, um, My understanding of this was that kind of like the corn turns people into kind of disciples. Children. Children. Adults. Children. Yeah. 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 Adults can Um, just eat it and enjoy the delicious corn. Unless. (laughs) 
you know, there's a, there's later on when they eat it, they, things don't go so well. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a really cool conceit here that I really enjoyed. Where like obviously, as these high school kids start acquiescing to the values of uh, he who walks behind the rose. I think it's cool that, like, obviously the kind of, like, headmaster slash priest guy, Frank, who's been obviously kind of side-eyeing this entire situation for this entire time, is now, like, something is badly wrong, um, and, like, these kids are getting indoctrinated and blah, 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 and you see him sitting there having this conversation with his colleague, and he's like, what are you talking about? It's like, there's no antisocial behavior, nobody's smoking in the bathrooms anymore, things are better than they've ever been. Like, what are you complaining about? And I was just like, I, like, I really love that, like how, like how much of a kind of uh, impasse that puts him at. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Really, really fun. I like that a lot. Meanwhile, though, uh, by the way, like that um, factory, that factory sermon that you get was where I wrote down is that Charlie's throne. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just yep. um. So that, that. So that's that's how slow that horse was in crossing the finish line. Just in case anyone was curious. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, wait till you get to four and five. Those those movies have insane casts. Oh really. <laughs> Well, yeah, part four is like Naomi Watts and Karen Black. Part okay. five is, let me see, Eva Mendez, Ahmed Zapid, Fred Williamson, David Carradine, and Alexis Arquette. Jesus, and I okay. Think, yeah, Michael Ironside's in part seven. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of really crazy cast in this series. See, Justin, you're just nudging me just enough in the direction of this series that you're starting to worry me here. <laughs> I the impression that like we're going to come at this a few months later and I'm going to have seen them all. It's not the worst use of your time i think everything up to part up part five is you're pretty safe like you've got a pretty fun decent time and then six and seven are eh i mean they're worth it for the completest level eight is worth it for the completest level nine's pretty okay it's uh from the guy that directed feast uh it, it's oh it's, it's got like the it's more modern i, I think it was made like four, four years ago it's got probably the most mean-spirited kills of the entire franchise it's, I don't think it's the be- one of the best movies in the franchise, but it's certainly worth watching. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me, coming from the man who made Feast and Piranha 3D. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> three double D. <laughs> three double D, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Joshua is starting to piece certain things together as William and Eli discuss the fact that William has sealed the deal and uh, the corn is about to go international. But <laughs> while this is happening, yeah, we see Joshua kind of making amends with Malcolm, and then Malcolm kind of becomes his partner in crime in terms of piecing some of this stuff together and getting us to where we need to be for where this ultimately goes and how it ends. Yeah, he has yeah. a kind of midnight walk to clear his head, and then the next day, like, a package comes to the door for Amanda. She can't get it, obviously, on account of being dead. So he takes it, and it turns out she's been... Some of the stuff she's been digging into, Mitch, which you mentioned earlier has now arrived and it's like the newspaper article that we saw the like the social worker reading and all that kind of stuff yeah that's right kind of in synchronicity with this joshua clocks that eli killed his father at this point i wrote down that um i think that eli is a kind of like because obviously like i think like the main thing that people remember and talk about from children of the corn is isaac yeah mm-hmm. and, and i think and malachi but I, yeah i i think that i think that i'm uh i think that Eli is a perfectly strong successor. Mm. Oh, yeah. Here. Like, I, I, I actually like Eli a little better than Isaac. I mean, Isaac's, <clears throat> if people talk about the original Children of the Corn like it's a classic, and yeah, it launched a big franchise, and the movie's pretty solid. But I think uh, Daniel Cerny does a better job of being like a more effective villain in, in a lot of ways. Uh, he's not as whiny and screamy as Isaac yeah. is. Uh, and I think he he's much more sociopathic, and it, it's 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 more entertaining for me because he 
he's not trying to hold on to power that he's losing. He, he knows he's in power the entire time. And that really comes across in, in the performance uh, by, by Daniel Cerny. So, uh, yeah, I, I actually prefer Eli to Isaac. I, I agree. He's got the best parts of Isaac and Malachi in him. Um, mm-hmm. But he views himself as unstoppable, which Isaac never, ever has. Isaac's massively insecure in his position. Joshua disturbs Malcolm, wakes him up first thing in the morning to dispense what, to the untrained ear, does sound like tinfoil hat nonsense. <laughs> like, like, like if, if, obviously, Malcolm in the film, this time will come to realise that there's a fair amount of truth of what he's saying, but when he shows up and he's like, you woke me up for this, it's like, yeah, that pretty much be my reaction as well, I think. <laughs> Joshua, though, is piecing a bunch of things together with alarm and ease, like the stuff about Eli's corn bible and all that stuff. Like he he figures all this stuff out in record time. Well, I feel like they're both from Gatlin, so Josh, well, our, Joshua knows more than he lets on. I think in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. he probably knows enough about the history of Gatlin mm-hmm. uh, and where he came from that he's just regressed it. So he's starting to kind of remember. As for the the connection between Eli and the Corn Bible, uh, and and you know that idea of how to kill Eli, that one seems like it comes out of left field. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think a lot yeah, of the rest can... of it is, is probably just regressed memory. Um, yeah, you, you can draw a causal line to most of it. But yeah, like when he turned up and had that completely sauced at the end, I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> also, at no point in the early running are Joshua and Eli in the presence together of the Corn Bible. But he also mm-hmm. says, look, he's obviously buried the Corn Bible under one of these scarecrows. Good guess. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. At the absolute worst, it's a good guess. Yeah, Frank, priest headmaster guy, comes in. Uh, comes in for a rough time here. Yeah. I, I really like this set piece a lot. Me too. Um, the the torturing of Frank, especially the Virgin Mary statue that they made come alive, which is is a practical and looks fucking creepy as hell. But it still looks like a it, yeah. like it's well done as a as an actual statue. And, uh, and you know, it, it's such a throwaway thing too. It just subtly starts to move and look at them, and then they cut, and it's it, they don't overdo it. It doesn't jump at them or anything yeah. like that. Like the movie knows when to cut away, which is is always nice for horror because when you do too much, you know you got that last jump scare at the camera. It can kind of undo the unsettling uh, goodwill you built up over a period of time. I find, and mm-hmm. this one kind of keeps the goodwill alive, and then goes, oh, but we're also going to throw an insane ending massacre at you because why not? Who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, uh, we're getting to just about the point where the third act of this turns into, and I mean this entirely as a compliment, but um, where the fact the third act of this becomes this unbelievable grab bag of chaotic set pieces and imagery. Yeah, and yeah, and I think that the the, the Frank uh, kind of like death or torture scene kind of is the sign that we're shifting gears for Act Three. Absolutely, because immediately after this. Eli heads over to Maria and Malcolm's house and poisons their parents uh, in graphic and very theatrical style. Love it. Very Halloween 3, too. Mm-hmm. The bugs coming out of their face and their heads splitting open when they fall over and they're just full of insects. And yeah, it's it's very uh, <laughs> very theatrical, for sure. Um, and just creepy because you know, their own daughter is sitting there and she's just zero emotion on her face the whole time. I, I really love the line as well, where they're just like, you're the first. <laughs> Joshua and Malcolm. Uh, are off digging around and have an incredible set piece encounter with the scarecrow here at this point. <laughs> they've they've gone back to Gatlin. They've driven yeah. to Gatlin through the night, which I guess uh, isn't that far from the city. Like, well, there's a point like later a where you see a seventy mile uh, yeah, road yeah. sign. It, oh, it's that's just not so bad. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not that far from whatever. I don't. I, did they ever establish what city it is? It's like, Chicago. Okay, yeah, Chicago. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, because it, it, it certainly seems like that's a drive you could knock out in an evening. Yeah. <laughs> um, because yeah, the um, th- this this set piece, this kind of like the scarecrow, the scarecrow confrontation here is brilliant as well. I'm kind of loath to just like I'm very wary of how we talk about the third act, be us being us just describing one set piece after another, and all just like universally agreeing that they're great. But like, it's kind of true. Yeah, mm. yeah. There's so much about this bit that the the stuff in Gatlin that really really works for me here from the mad monster scarecrow like that just looks like something out of are you afraid and it's, of that? it's it's Joshua's father too, yeah right? yeah of course so, like he looks up he recognizes his dad, his dad who's been crucified as a scarecrow and then it immediately turns into this like he's like papa and then it turns into this monster scarecrow and tries to kill him and <laughs> bleakest shit ever by the way yeah yeah for sure do we know why at the very start of the film the film kind of begins with the dad chasing Joshua with a big scythe. Do we know why he's trying to kill Joshua? Well, maybe, maybe it's it's the like they don't actually establish it, but I always just assume that he he realizes he's he's adopted these Gatlin kids because I I don't even think they're in Gatlin in that cornfield. That's not Gatlin. Right. No. Gatlin, they were adopted from Gatlin. To so they are, and then onwards to Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. because Eli is there, Eli has turned this cornfield into his own playground, just like he did in the city. Mm. He's trying to. Uh, he's probably trying to kill Joshua because he thinks he's tied to the evil that's been brought to his land or whatever reason. Sure. It's from Spanner yeah. in the works, though. The film opens with a Gatlin sign. Ooh, Population okay. one, two, three. All right, so just, it is still Gatlin. Yeah, I believe so. It's interesting. Okay, so they. Yeah, it's still Gatlin. Then, then, then there would have been one thing about the series that I like is that it's a it's a folk horror series, and there's always these sort of whispers in each of these movies about this community where this evil has festered and grown and everybody sort of knows about it to some degree, but they're never, they don't know what angle it's going to attack from. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the kids in the first one, it's the kids in the second, it's always the kids. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but this idea that like they gradually become real, realize what's going on and, and then all the kids attack at once kind of thing. So if that was part of the actual canon to the story, then he, this, this father was probably like, well, I'll take these kids in. I don't understand what happened. And then he realizes, Oh, they're evil. Or at least one of them is evil. Yeah. And then yeah. He, I kind of assumed it was either that or uh, Joshua broke one of his fancy glass ornaments. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but crucially, uh, they retrieve the uh, Bible. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's Just obviously the point of the mission for, for reasons that will become apparent. Eli is holding another corn rally at this point. Can we yes. just quickly mention Malcolm's death because it's fucking amazing? Oh shit! Yes, we can. Yeah. Uh, it's my favourite death in isolation in the film when those tendrils stretch his head away up like a tree like fucking yeah yeah like, it's like he's a totem pole they yeah, turn into like, like, a, like a totem pole of the spinal cord kind of thing like Mechanic from Masters of the Universe yeah. if anybody remembers him yeah it's a pretty crazy death it's that, that one stuck with me since I saw it when I was young it was like, that's probably my probably my favourite death in the series although there's there's a really crazy one in 5 that's just like what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, yeah absolutely a great death it's and it, that's that's more of that screaming mad George. Like if you saw Return of the Living Dead Part Three, uh-huh. there's an entire character who has his head ripped off and his spinal cord ripped out of his back. Yep. And then as a zombie, he walks around on four legs with the spinal cord up and the head moving like a snake. And screaming mad George is so good at creating these sort of like what could a human body do in a sort of surrealistic fashion that would be like yeah, I, uh, that's absolutely a, a key screaming mad George approach to a lot of things. I think. What can I put a face on, or how, how can I, you know, how can I make a sculpture that looks some, like something you've never seen before? Well, it gets to do a lot of that pretty soon again when, with uh, oh, yeah. the kind of final creature. Yeah, I am. I I wasn't ready for this. I mean, like, I mean, I obviously like I kind of seen 
the lengths this film does go to and can go to, but I don't think I was necessarily ready for the scale of the like final standoff because obviously yeah you've got Eli kind of like like I say he's got this kind of like he's doing this kind of like rally thing with a few well a whole load of other uh kind of like the newly converted followers William shows up breaks the good news about sealing the deal he's like cheers then kills him with a scythe yeah yeah obviously he served his purpose um very eventful meeting straight after that um Joshua shows up with the bible he has yeah somehow uh because reasons has come up with the fact that destroying both the bible and Eli will kind of end the cycle of agelessness or immortality that we've, uh, that's been established that Eli has. Despite the fact that Eli is kind of like the principal antagonist in this, I feel like his death is like, yeah, we can we can kind of blow past that. It gets like, you know, that happens. Yeah, he's uh, the Bible is pierced and in doing so it pierces Eli. And you would think it would end there too. That feels like, you know, in a, in a lesser, <laughs> I want to say lesser movie, but in, in a movie that didn't try and swing for the fences, it would have ended with Eli getting the... the the sight of the chest and him, you know, dying. And it's like, oh, the curse is broken. But nope, it's uh-huh. uh, it's, got a, it's got one more trick up its sleeve. It sure <laughs> does. Um, yeah. I must admit, see, like, whenever they talk about he who walks behind the rose and stuff like that, which mm-hmm. is presumably what we're looking at here. Like, I had a st- I had my mental picture of it, particularly from uh, Children of the Corn, uh, the first one. My, my image was this much more subdued, kind of like, almost like, kind of um, a way, like, I, I imagine something kind like of like a... Trap, like a graboid or something right because that's what it looks like in the first one it's just the dirt being pushed up as it moves between the rows yeah i feel like i feel like this is i feel like this is a significant level up (laughs) well it's it's like a lovecraftian elder monster of some kind like it's got eyeballs everywhere it's 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 unknowable in terms of the way it looks and it's got it's got it clearly got a giant root attached to it too so how deep does it go and what else is below it you know, it's all it, like, is this just one tendril of a much bigger creature? I hope so, yeah. because this is awesome. <laughs> a lot of casualties and a great, great sequence here, I think. Yeah. That's so, so fun. Feels very much like, uh, I mean, James Hickox, his brothers, Anthony Hickox, who directed Hellraiser 3 and Waxwork and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Now, and Hellraiser 3, which has like a similar kill scene in the uh, in the club. When yeah, well, it. that's what I was going to say. And, and James Hickox was a assistant editor on that so this feels very much like him trying to emulate what his brother did a couple of years earlier yeah maybe that's entirely possible because <laughs> this is pure carnage and it's amazing there's some great set pieces in here not not only uh charlie's theron's evil dead homage kill uh, you get the guy who's chopped in half by the plate of glass like in ghost yep yes yeah, it's, it's just mad madness people are like drowning in mud or quicksand and wild flying scythes and uh you know, piercing vines coming out of the ground and skewering more than one person at once. And you know what it reminds me of is the, the big party kill scene from Wishmaster. Mm, yeah. To some, mm-hmm. some degree. Where it's yeah. just like, you know, people die in various ways. And it's, I've always loved uh, loved scenes like that in horror movies where they're just like, let's just do a massive practical effects showcase and slaughter a ton of people mm-hmm. in as many creative ways as we possibly can just to show how fucked everything is. <laughs> and... and <laughs> And uh, and that's probably why this movie stood out to me more than the rest of the series because they they this it builds really nicely. There's lots of great set pieces and and I actually like the overall story. But this ending is what seals the deal for me. It's incredible. Pretty much every other movie is is way more low key than this. They don't quite go as balls to the wall with everything. And part four, I don't even think they mentioned he who walks behind the rose once in the entire movie. But I still like it as a, as a self contained horror movie. Yeah. It's just you know it's this one really leans into the supernatural. 
I gotta say, like, because obviously, like, at the end, like, the culmination of this entire uh, set piece is that Joshua ultimately kind of defeats this thing and uh, and rescues uh, Maria. Mm-hmm. Um, Who has been eaten. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He turns into a doll for a split second and gets picked up by the puppet and gets eaten. Yes. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> but, like, because uh, like I said, I don't know much um, about what happens with the series after this, but I did read that um, four kind of exists entirely in- independently from what you see. Yeah, it's like here. in a pocket dimension almost. It's, uh, but it's really the thing I like a lot about four, and I because I, I don't want to give it away because you haven't seen it, but it starts with uh, it's it, like almost like everybody, every kid in the town gets a flu or a virus. So it's about the medical doctors trying to figure out what the fuck is wrong with these kids, and then they flip. Oh, okay. So there's a nice pandemic kind of side to it that, that like, and it's Naomi Watts, so it's pretty well grounded in that. But then it turns nuts, and and I like I, I think if I was going to rank it four, it would be like my third favorite in the series. Okay, uh, it's worth watching, but it is a little disappointing after watching part three to go there, and there's like no mention of the events of part three, and they don't even mention he walks behind the rose even once, and uh, and it's not as supernatural. Like supernatural shit happens, but it's not. It's not like vines coming out of the ground or things turning into monsters. It's a lot more omen-esque type stuff. Right. Um, you know, random events happening that kill people or kids that kill. People. I think that the reason why I think that like when I when I kind of got um, or when I kind of came across the fact that it doesn't tie into this, the reason that feels kind of just having just seen this one of those two, um, a little bit disappointing is the fact that it sets it up so nicely for something that could have been mm-hmm. explored. Because obviously, yeah. you see that like how this ends ultimately is. Um, the corn landing in germany so you know that basically like the deal's gone through and this is just about to go international like mm-hmm. and then that could have been a global you know a global worldwide uh children rising up to take down you know mom and dad or no the opposite of mom and dad yeah anyway the yeah yeah the, all the kids raising up but in a way i kind of like it in that halloween three kind of way where you yeah. know they, they don't they don't stop all the broadcasts so a bunch of kids die but they don't there's no movie to follow up after that at all you know maybe someone will write a children of the corn three follow-up comic or something someday mm. <laughs> i don't know but you're right it would it would have been cool to to continue on with the story for at least one more film but uh i don't think yeah they just kept kept reinventing it every single part like they do not connect but Mm -hmm. that doesn't make them not worth watching because in a way it's like they i'm not going to compare to the alien series in terms of quality but in a lot in a a way that's kind of how the approach is where every every director puts their own stamp on it and makes a different type of movie every part and Mm -hmm. uh, and i can appreciate that yeah, especially for something where nobody really cares. Like, <laughs> ultimately, I, I mean, people rented them, or there wouldn't be eleven of them now. <laughs> but it's not like people were like, "Oh, you can't do that because that wasn't established in part two. It's like nobody cared. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's reasonable, and I mean like like I mean at this point the film's over. This is a perfectly natural point to talk about this. Like mm-hmm. that is interesting. Like I like I think that part of the reason why I was surprised that this has spawned quite so many sequels um, is because this is nobody's favorite franchise, as far as I know. No, no, I don't think so. No, but I, I I respect it. I mean, I wouldn't have sat through nine of them last year if I didn't. I, if I wasn't at least well, the way I would explain it is, I got the Friday the Thirteenth box set the day I started watching all the Children of the Corn movies. So, <laughs> so like, I really liked this Friday the Thirteenth series a lot, but there was so much more ingrained in my head, and I'd forgotten most of the Children of the Corns. I'd seen, I think, I'd seen up to part seven, and then I stopped watching them. Something like that. No, it was. I'd seen up to part five, then I saw part seven, and that was it. No, six and seven I hadn't seen, and nine I hadn't seen. Anyway, long story short is that uh, I was like, okay, I'm just going to watch them all because I got the time. I guess uh, I'm going I'm to turn my brain off, and maybe this will just melt it just enough to, <laughs> for me to get out of my head a little bit. And I, I was surprised by how much fun I had with most of the movies in the series. Funny thing is, uh, part six is directed by Carrie Scoglin, who's like a, a, a Toronto-based director. 
uh, who in the 90s made another uh, Toronto shot movie with Paul Rudd called The Size of Watermelons. But okay. most, her name's Carrie Scoglin. But the most recent thing she did was direct all of the Falcon, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Oh, wow. So, you know, there's, really? there's some random trivia for you is that, you know, she's directing Marvel stuff now, but she started with Joe McCorn part 666, Isaac's Return. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. I, 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 I find stuff like that. I find career arcs like that so fascinating, actually. Yep. Andy, I don't think either of us have really cultivated much of an air of mystery. No. I think of this one. No, this. I, like I say, this was a first watch for me. I loved it. I thought it had a really excellent antagonist. I thought it had amazing effects that just, they're everything I want um, from practical effects. I can't get enough of screaming my George's stuff. I think it's just some of the best, weirdest stuff out there. But yeah, I, I, I thought this was an absolute blast, like, from start to finish. It doesn't really give you any time to kind of stop and smell the, the roses. It just hammers through, like, from that opening to the ending. There's not really any breathing space in here, and it's all the better for it. Like, I felt like this flew in. This is an hour and a half, and it just goes. Yeah, that was kind of one of the things that I was going to say uh, positive about it. Like, I think that, like, um, it's an incredible exercise in lean storytelling. Yeah. Uh, like, it's just like, it's like, it's absolute steadfast refusal to pause for breath is one of its greatest strengths, I think. Because you can just, like, it gives you a very, very easy entry point without a massive amount of franchise knowledge early on. And you can just mm-hmm. kind of sail on from there and uh, just enjoy the escalating madness, which is exactly why I did. Escalating madness is a good, uh, is a good way to summarize this movie, I think. Because, you know, if you're if you're not in from the beginning, I think by the end, if you're the right type of wired horror fan, like the, the, the right, like who likes the mix of schlock and practical effects with, you know, go for broke ideas and stuff like that. I think I think by the end, it'll definitely win you over. But I, I think for the most part, people should be grabbed from the beginning. It certainly uh, uh, punches above its weight a lot. Mm. It, it, and it, you wouldn't expect it from Children of the Corn 3 Urban Sacrifice. I'm just going to say right now, I think this is my favourite of the ones that I've seen in this franchise. I, I, I really like this. I mean, I've only seen the two, but it's my favourite too. I thought this was, I thought this, I thought this was great. Uh, Justin, this was a, this was a really, really great choice. Uh, I had a great time with it. I'm really interested to hear what um, the listeners think of it too. So a big thank you for that. However, we do want to talk to you, of course, about uh, Clapboard Jungle. Yeah, sure. the last time we spoke to you was round about the time that Life Changer came out. For you guys, it was 101 ago. So. Yeah. A couple <laughs> of years, yeah, must be. Yeah. It's gone on to Netflix, and it's gone on to yep. Have a Great Life. and Yeah, it's on Shutter in the UK right now. Yeah, and then, is, yeah. now Clapboard Jungle's out on the Arrow Player, um, which yep. we, we talked about a couple of weeks ago on a Patreon episode. Yeah, I heard that, actually. Thank you. I thought it was amazing. I just want to say, even though the movie is me turning the camera on myself, I tried to make it where I was just a case study. And I really yeah. hope that people would get across the point that like, I'm not trying to show this is how hard it is for me. I'm trying yeah. to show like, this is how hard it can be for somebody. Yeah. This is and, how hard it uh, is full stop. Yeah. 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 As, and, 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 you know, how can you navigate that and that sort of thing? Uh, there was a review I liked a lot that mentioned how I'm like goofy in one of those old, old cartoon shorts where he's learning to play baseball and he keeps fucking up. And then someone's <laughs> like, actually goofy, what you need to do is choke up on the bat and swing like this. And that, that, uh, that's kind of how it was structured on an editorial level too. It was just like, you know, I'd fuck up and then a bunch of people would say that what I should have done. And I think some people have interpreted that as like, well, the advice is counteracting what he's doing. It's like, yeah, that's the point. I'm <laughs> I'm trying anyway. Long story short is, uh, yeah, I was I was really hoping to just make something that would be kind of like a trial and because so much of making movies is trial and error and like learning by doing and making mistakes and then fixing those mistakes and 
making sure you don't make the same mistake a second time. I was trying to get that process into the actual story of the film itself uh, and, and as clearly as I could without spelling it out and saying, this is what I'm trying to do. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad that most people have, have warmly um, enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, for, the, for those who didn't like the personal side of the story, the eight episode series that we're currently editing that should be out later this year. Well, will be out later this year unless I get sick or have way too much work to be able to finish the edit is all talking heads and topics. So it's, it's a, it's a whole other format, mm -hmm. uh, cool. but, and it's, it's much more of an educational kind of thing, entertaining, but still just like, if you want to know more, here's what you put on in the background or, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, I think that like, um, I think you hit on something that I think is like one of the things that I liked the most about it was that I think that it manages to be this kind of broad commentary of how challenging that process can be, but also felt really personal to you. I think that like, um, it doesn't feel like either one of those two things take over. I think yeah. that like, uh, I think that you're right. I think it functions really well as a case study that serves a kind of broader point or broader observations. I think that it worked really effectively in that way. I appreciate that. That's uh... It was a long journey to get it to this point. Yeah, um, still not done. <laughs> I do like I do like the fact that um, uh, speaking as like obviously like um, someone who caught Life Changer on the festival circuit with satellite screams where I saw it. It's like as a fan of that film, it was also kind of cool and kind of interesting to watch the film begin as being this kind of like um, this conversation about yourself as a filmmaker and kind of about filmmaking in general, but then kind of almost pulling into being kind of a making of of that film. Yeah, to some degree. I mean, I, I when I first started shooting Clapboard Jungle, I didn't even have the seed of the idea of life changer yeah. in my head at all, mm -hmm. uh, even a little bit. And when that idea hit me, I was originally going to make it as just like a series of short films where every version of Drew, of the character, I would just have different a different actor playing him so that I could shoot it over five weekends or five blocks of shooting over like a one-year period and pay for it out of my own pocket. And eventually I just abandoned that approach because I didn't want to do a Peter Jackson bad taste and just like drag something out forever. Yeah. And we just tried to shop for money. And then that became a whole process on its own. So I was already deep into shooting Clap or Jungle at that point. And uh, it was almost like, I don't know if Life Changer got made partially because I wanted Clap or Jungle to have an ending. Like I worked it even, even harder <laughs> to get Clap or Jungle or to get Life Changer made because I was like, well, I don't want to end this with me not making the movie that I'm trying to make or any movie. You know, there was a point where I thought yeah, you don't want to end with like an unmade yeah. film and a bummer ending to your documentary. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I, and, uh, well, which was kind of what happened with Skull World to a degree, because we ended that movie, uh, the previous documentary I made, we ended that we were in meetings Well, we had signed on with a television uh, development company and AMC uh, networks had, had taken interest in the show and we were going to commission a pilot. And we were, that's pretty much where the, the, that doc ended. It's right around that time. Uh, so we didn't have that pilot actually happening. Point. And then obviously that pilot didn't go. AMC stopped doing reality TV right around then mm. too. Uh, we got passed over for Billy Corgan's backyard wrestling, and then that got dropped. In <laughs> so it was like it was like we dodged the bullet to some degree. But yeah, I didn't want to make another documentary where the ending was like you know follow your dreams. You you might make it, but not actually show, you know not actually show it. And I, I don't even I wouldn't even consider Life Changer to be. Like it's not like the top of the ladder I'm trying to climb. It's another rung, but yeah. at least it shows, you know, uh, the the method put into practice, put into reality, kind of thing. You know, I did make another feature film while I was making Clapboard Jungle. I shot Broken Mile. That was a thing that I put down. Yeah. And minimal money and shot in four days, kind of thing. And that's not necessarily the ending you want. You know, it's it's like you too can spend very little money and wrangle a few people together, and and there, there's truth to that. You can absolutely like the threshold people. 
yeah. and super impressed with what they did. That's, a, that's, a, that's an incredible film. Very rarely does that work. And they really made it work. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, uh, I, I got to respect them for that. I don't know if I could have made that like the way that they did. I, I mean, I, I'm sure I could have made a film that was some, not that film specifically, but given their limitations and stuff, I'm not sure I would have delivered that movie. Maybe. Yeah. I, I just, yeah. I don't know. It, it's, I was impressed. But Gladboard Jungle, auto player everywhere and also out through auto in general on Blu-ray as well. Yeah, it's on Blu-ray. I, if you wanted to watch all of the stuff on the Blu-ray with all the commentary tracks, it would take you 24 hours. So <laughs> you're, getting, you're getting some value. There's even a, an entire feature film hidden in as an Easter egg on that. So, you know, go searching. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've got it right. I've got it right here. Yeah, yeah. You'll Well, you might find an, a hidden feature film if you go looking. Whoa, um, okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's, there's that. And you can also rent it on regular VOD platforms in, in various places. And uh, yeah, it's out there. Um, sure. In Canada, if you're listening from Canada, it's on Super Channel right now if you want to watch it uh, through a streaming service of some kind. Uh, and all the extras are on Aeroplayer Canada. So it's it's split up, but what can you do? Yeah, I, I right, mean... Rights are rights. <laughs> Arrow just seemed to have been, like, absolutely the right place for this to land for uh, you. Like. I, I'm beyond impressed with how they treat filmmakers. And, and like, I if you would have asked me six months ago before I approached Mike Hewitt and Arrow about this after we played Fright Fest and stuff like mm-hmm. that, if you had asked me, oh, you're going to be on Aeroplayer, but not only that, they're going to create two complete special short film collections for you and somehow brand you up that way, yeah. put up a previous documentary of you and give you a curated list, I would have been like, are you fucking kidding me? Nobody cares about film, like indie filmmakers like that, but Arrow do. And uh, I, I can't be more thankful for just, you know, it's one thing to make a movie and it gets up on, a, on Shutter or whatever else. I think it's another thing where they try and curate the artist behind the movie. Uh, as much as the movie itself, I, I, I I'm, yeah, I'm, it's like a pinch me kind of moment. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is amazing. You're right. Just like kind of just trying to. Obviously, they're picking up these like these festival titles that are great, and it's mm. and it's like a it's the perfect platform for a lot of them. But you're right. It's just kind of like trying to build this picture to people who are interested enough to go down that rabbit hole. Just give them the option. It's like nobody's mm. doing that. The thing is, it's entirely optional, right? You do not have to look, go any deeper. You don't have to, you can just go past that stuff. Yeah. But I love the idea that in one place and in one platform, if people want to dig deeper, believe me, it's there for the most stuff. For the, like, even, even for some of the older stuff, they put up all the bonus features on the streaming platform and they're not worried. It doesn't seem like they're worried at all about losing Blu-ray buyers because I think they're two completely separate audiences to some degree. Like the collectors are going to collect anyway. And yep. which is yep. great, and, and the player is there for, to catch everyone else, and the collectors too, because it's what it's like five bucks a month. Absolutely, yeah. uh, Justin. Where can people keep up with you on social media? Uh, so I'm on uh, most of the major platforms. I'm Unstable Ground on Twitter, but you can just search my name. You can search my name on Facebook. Uh, I'm Unstable Ground Justin on Instagram. I'm not on TikTok. <laughs> uh, I'm on LinkedIn, but I don't check it. And uh, so. Don't, you know, don't get mad if I don't respond to you there because I don't see those messages. Um, and my website is unstableground.net. And from that, you can find everything else pretty much. That is both the most comprehensive and the most honest assessment of someone's social media presence that I've ever heard in this part. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, thank you so much. Justin, no thank problem. you for doing this again. This has been yeah. amazing. And thank you for Enjoy introducing the me. Enjoy the children of the corn rabbit hole you're about to go on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Strap in. Yeah, I've actually yeah, just seen that uh, part two is on Amazon Prime. So uh, yeah, that should be uh, honest. Part yeah, two I'd say would be my fourth favorite. One would be my second favorite, and five would be my fifth favorite. 
And then after that, it's all sort of diminished returns. But I still think they're worth seeing. Like you can, there are worse ways to kill your time. Let's put it that way. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so a very positive chat all around there, really, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you know what? You might think, Children of the Corn 3, Really? Am I really going to give my, my time to a film that's colonised as Urban Harvest? But, do you know what? You should. Yeah, I can understand why on paper it's maybe something that you wouldn't flock to. Yeah, sure. But absolutely worth your time and a great pick. And also, cannot stress enough, big thank you to Justin, first off, for coming on for a second mm-hmm. time. Yeah, yeah, really nice. Somehow 101 episodes after his original appearance. Jesus. But also, yeah, if you haven't already... Go and check out Life Changer on Shudder and Clapboard Jungle on the Arrow Player. Both great, great films. Yeah, really great. However, with that, we are out once again. <sighs> so uh, we will leave you in peace for your weekends, and then we'll be back on Monday morning with another minisode for you. Yeah, and you know what next week's probably going to mean, don't Go you? Go on. Well, I'm not going to say it lest we ruin the end of the minisode on Monday. Yeah, uh-huh. But yeah, I think we're back in that territory once again. Yeah, it certainly feels that way. Mm-hmm. If you want to get in touch and chat to us about anything that we've talked about tonight on any other show, or indeed anything else horror-related, then you know what to do. Facebook and Instagram are Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us at Strong Violent PC. You can email Scenes at gmail.com and join the conversation on our Facebook group, The Chud Locker. We got an email this week. We sure did. We'll be reading that out on Monday. Spoilers. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Patreon. Delighted. Uh, Genuinely, I feel like the minute that I started talking about um, executing the email address, everybody flocked to it. It's great. But we've, we've had two. We've had two. Yeah, but I mean, like, it's, a, it's a, like an unprecedented upward spike on the previous year, though. Yeah, calm your fucking jets. <laughs> Patrons. Yeah, we'll be back next week with more fun and games. We sure will. Some good stuff brewing. We have, for once, we've picked what we're going to do. We know what's happening. So strap in for that. That is coming this week. However, we're back Monday with another mini-sode. Mini-sode 152, no less. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chugs. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.